Hi everyone, this is Aaron Moskowitz of the Get In My Garden podcast. This is episode 59 with entomologist, researcher, and author Douglas Tallamy. His new book is called Nature's Best Hope, A New Approach to Conservation That Starts in Your Yard. He shares about plants and insect interactions, ornamentals and how they are affecting the local food webs, and his ongoing research on invasive plants. Then Douglas gives a directive for creating a sustainable relationship with the earth focused on our yards and three-dimensional native landscapes. He talks about his categorization of keystone plants that drive the food webs and can help restore nature and extend preserved lands. This goes beyond just any native plants and focuses on those that are extremely productive in their support of the food webs. This book has really inspired me, and I hope you will go out and order yourself a copy. Enjoy my interview with Douglas and follow up with the resources he mentions in our interview. You can follow the podcast and my adventures at Get In My Garden on Instagram or visit my website, getinmygarden.com, to sign up for the growing newsletter. There are a lot of questions about your book, but firstly, I f- feel that uh, I think people would like to know about your history, your research over the years, and the message of the book is promising. There's a lot that people can do. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, well, that's a that's a question I often get. How did I actually get along this this path? I am an entomologist. I went to graduate school in entomology, and one of the things that uh, we spent a lot of time learning about back in the '70s was what we called plant insect interactions. And one of the prime takeaways from all of that work was that most insects that interact with plants do so in a very specific way. We call them host plant specialists because plants want to defend themselves from insects. So they make it very hard for insects to actually use them. They, they load their tissues with nasty chemicals and, and the insects have to adapt to get around those defenses. And it is much easier to pick one plant lineage and adapt to get around those defenses than to try to do it for all the plant lineages. So this has forced about 90% of the insect herbivores down the road of specialization. And the, the monarch butterfly is a perfect example of that. Most people know they're only going to develop on milkweeds, very specialized relationship mm-hmm. with that one genus of plant. But they're very good at, at getting around milkweed defenses. Milkweeds are toxic plants. Well, 90% of the insects that eat plants have a relationship just like that with other plants. And of course, the bottom line with that is that if you don't have those plants in your landscape, you're not going to have those, those insects. So we can talk about why we need those insects in a minute. But I noticed these relationships playing themselves out in a very powerful way when we bought a new property in uh, Oxford, Pennsylvania, back in the year 2000. And the area had been mowed for hay before we, we built a house on it. And it had been out of mowing three years before we moved in. So what came back were all the invasive plants that they had been mowing. So in our area, that's, that's autumn olive and multiflora rose and oriental bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and burning bush and all of our favorite invasives. When we moved in, I, I, uh, you know, I'm always looking for insects. I walk around and I look for uh, insect feeding uh, damage on leaves. And right away I noticed, well, there isn't any feeding damage on all these uh, plants from Asia, but the native plants are, are supporting good insect populations. So I said, well, this will make a, an interesting undergraduate research project. I didn't think it was anything new because that's exactly what we learned about back in graduate school, that insects are specialists. So how could an, our, our native insects specialize, specialize on, on Chinese plants? 
Well, there was a, a, a young lady at school who wanted to do that project. I said, look in the literature, see what's already been done. And she said, I can't find anything. So I said, well, I'll look. And I looked and I couldn't find anything either. There was a big long list of why invasive plants are not good ideas, but wrecking food webs was not on that list. And that led us down the path of an entirely new area of research, which I'm still pursuing some, uh, well, we're pushing 20 years later here. Um, so the, you know, the object is to look at what are these non-native plants, whether they're invasive or simply ornamentals in our yards, what are they doing to local food webs? In other words, are they making bird food and, and things like that that support the, the creatures we really would like to share our, our landscapes with? And of course, the answer is they're not. But you know, quantifying that is important. Showing people real numbers makes a difference. That's the thing. I, I mean, I have always been interested in these subjects. And then I think the main th takeaway that well, besides there is a promising view on all of this, on how regular people can actually help, but, you know, the phobia around insects and even in very mainstream landscaping circles, people really just aren't focused on insects. You know, they're trying to kill Absolutely, insects sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. I, I mean, the the quantity of insects that you're mentioning in the book that people are tracking, it's amazing. And if we were just focused on helping them directly, the influence that that would have on our, our entire ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, it is the, you know, it is the everyday landowner who's going to make a difference here because there aren't nearly enough people focused on, on conservation, not, not enough professionals. So, you know, if we, if we have the uh, audacity to own part of the earth, we also have the responsibility to take care of, of that part. As far as we know, all the life in the universe is right here on planet earth. You know, and it's certainly all the life we're going to interact with. So it's your civic responsibility. If you're going to own land, we can't uh, eliminate all the life forms on it just to make it look pretty. We've fallen into the trap of thinking the plants are just decorations. Uh, and we've fallen mm -hmm. into that trap because the horticultural trade has said, yeah, they're decorations. And they are decorations. They're beautiful. But we've forgotten the essential ecological roles that they play everywhere. And one of the most essential ones is passing on the energy they capture from the sun to other organisms. And if nothing eats that plant, that energy is trapped. It's not passed on. If you do that in a few places, it's okay, but we're doing it everywhere now. And then we've got the invasive plants that escape into our natural areas, and they're doing it too. And it's one of the major factors that is causing the headlines we're seeing every day, the you know, global insect decline, insect apocalypse, three billion fewer birds than we had uh, 50 years ago, a million, in, uh, a million species scheduled for extinction in the next 20 years. These are terrible headlines, and they're also things, it's not just news, it's something we cannot allow to happen. It is, they are not mm -hmm. an option if we're going to continue in a sustainable relationship with this earth. Actually, we've got to create a sustainable relationship because we've never actually had one. Um, but, you know, sustainable, what, what's the option or the, the alternative? An unsustainable relationship? That's, that's just not the future. So, Well, I think there's kind of a delusion that in some way, so we are ruining the earth, but then science and technology is going to solve the problem. And, I mean, that doesn't seem possible necessarily. I hope that it can help in some way. But um, and maybe you could, I, I know in the book you mentioned like the keystone right. uh Plants. So those are plants that can appeal to many insects, yeah, th right? This is the, an example of science actually trying to solve the problem. We're doing the science. 
uh, and we're finding the answers. The keystone plants are one of the answers. We have to put the plants that are best at producing the insects that drive the food webs. And again, let me, let me just give you an example. Where I come from, we've got the Carolina chickadee. Uh, been a lot of research on Carolina chickadees. It takes 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars to, to rear one clutch of chickadees. Wow. So if you want chickadees in your yard, you got to have six to 9,000 caterpillars, depending on the number of chicks in the nest. And it's one tiny bird. It's a third of an ounce. Um, so that's the number, the volume of insects that we need just to have birds around. So if you, if you use the ornamental plants that we're used to, the crepe myrtles and, and all these plants from Asia, they're not making any insects. So, you know, that, that's the end of the food web. No chickadees, no other birds. Uh, and and that's, not, that's not tolerable. But, and, but we learn that through science. So there's science solving the problem. Technology, eh, not so much. Just basic biological or ecological research here is all we need to know what we need to do to turn this around. I started talking about keystone plants. We have found that it's not just native versus non-native plants that makes the difference. About 5% of our native plants are making about 75% of the food that drives these food webs. So we want to focus on those very powerful plants that I've started to call keystone plants. If you think of the, the old Roman arches, the keystone was the, the stone right in the middle of the arch. And if you take that out, the arch falls down. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take these keystone plants out of your, your landscape, the food web collapses. So, so that's something we learned through science. And it's very easy to choose these plants. So a good example would, would be oaks. They are the best plant in terms of, of supporting food webs uh, in 84% of the counties in, in North America. And I'll just give you an example. Where I live, there are 557 species of caterpillars that develop on oaks. And if you think of those caterpillars as bird food, that's 557 species of bird food compared to, say, a tulip tree, another good native, but there's only 21 species on that compared to something like a ginkgo biloba that we use as ornamentals all the time, Mm -hmm. zero species on that. So huge differences among our plants and in terms of their ability to support our food webs. Wow. I mean, I I think a lot of people who are interested in trees, they're planting them for the ornamental reasons, like you say, but also they have this idea of them helping to build the soil or, you know, capture carbon. But it sounds like maybe it's really a bad decision because there's so many options that help the insects. Yeah. I mean, other plants do do that. They all make oxygen and they can help the soil. They can help manage our our food webs, but why not get a plant that does it all instead of a plant that, that leaves out a critical part. And if you look at the, the percentage of non-native ornamentals we're using, again, we've measured that around here. 79% of the plants in our landscapes are are non-native plants, mostly from China. Unbelievable. I mean, so, you know, we don't need that many non-native plants to make oxygen. We can do that with our native plants and support the life around us. Yeah. Well, I got really excited in the book when you started talking about the different, I mean, at first it's kind of daunting because each county you're mentioning has different specific natives and their needs. And of course that can be, you know, true also for the, you know, the, the native pollinators and the plants that they're in relationship with. So it seems overwhelming to people. Um, but what there are organizations out there that are already categorizing and, you know, making it a lot easier for people. Right. Right. Uh, so I'll mention the website native plant finder on National Wildlife Federation uh, website, you, you put in your zip code and the ranked list of woody and herbaceous plants for your county will pop up. So that makes it enormously easier. 
That's in terms of supporting uh, the caterpillars that drive these food webs. We need to develop similar lists for the pollinator specialists. And by pollinators, I'm largely talking about our native bees. We have 4,000 species of native bees, many of which can only develop on the pollen of particular plants. Mm-hmm. So again, where, where I live, uh, goldenrod's very highly ranked. Willows are highly ranked. Asters are highly ranked. Sunflowers are highly ranked. And that is all true for New Mexico as well. New Mexico has the second, I found out, largest variety of bees, second only to California. And right, I believe that. Yeah, and it's amazing. And that's so because dr- you have you have so many so many niches, uh, and so many biomes that they can exist in. And so I also was inspired by your story about you know going to New York City on the High Line and some of the activity that you saw there. Uh, so people who are in a city, my question has always been, what can they do? And it sounds like you have some answers for that. Right, right. That's a very, very good question. And right away, people say, well, I live in suburbia. I don't own 10 acres, so it's not going to work. So we've looked at other success stories in different parts of the country. Every size lot from you know, 0.6 acres to one-tenth of an acre to the little strip of plants uh, in the High Line and right in the middle of Manhattan. Every time you put in these native plants, a lot of life comes, a whole lot more than, than was there with just the non-native plants. Uh, I was really impressed with my trip to the High Line because um, I, I didn't believe it was going to work. I knew there'd be pretty plants there, but I did not think there would be the bees and the, and the monarchs and the other things that I encountered right away. They were there, and, and it convinced me. If this can work on a strip of plants three feet wide in the middle of Manhattan, it can work anywhere. Wow, yeah. And I wonder if, I mean, having all those t- tall buildings – and it offers some sort of shelter too. Maybe that's a perfect model, like to use these small strips within the urban areas. Well, I was worried that that you know the the insects wouldn't be able to find these plants. It would simply be a matter of isolation. Uh-huh. But they did. They found them. So, it's amazing. You know, the those tall buildings. If these plants were in the Grand Canyon, the canyons look like tall buildings, and the insects don't don't care. They're just looking for food and shelter. So food is the major one. I mean, that's the limiting factor. You put it there and they will come. Yeah. Well, can you tell us some stories, you know, inspiring stories about positive things that are happening? I know there are a lot of different organizations with very committed people and your book is about this. So people who don't believe that it's possible to make, you know, (laughs) a big improvement because I'm Right. The math is there. Not only that, it's it's inspiring, exciting for children. It's really healthy for everybody to get more involved in their the planning of their own yards. Well, one one of my major messages is you don't need a big organization for this to work. You just need a, a piece of, of the earth. So you put in those plants and then watch what's going to happen. Uh, and you get positive reinforcement because right away you will see a response. Yeah, you know, I talk about oak trees being the most powerful plant, but people say, we have to wait 300 years. No, you don't. I've got a picture of a oak sprout last year. It sprouted from the acorn. You could still see part of the acorn in the ground. And it was about three inches high. And there was a caterpillar standing. One end of the caterpillar is on the ground. The other end is reaching up to the leaves, eating that that oak seedling. So it starts right away, uh, attracting the things that then drive those, those food webs. Every state has a native plant society. So if you want help with, with uh, picking the appropriate plants for your, your area or, you know, uh, native plants need to be put in the right spot just like any other plant. Mm-hmm. 
so you can get a good idea of which, which you know, where to target the plants on that website I talked about. But um, where do you buy them? You know, that's where your native plant society can help. Or you can just go out and collect seeds yourself from, from natural areas. That's what's going to naturally be there. You don't want to be planting non-native plants. A lot of our natural areas are flooded with, with um, invasive plants, and we're, we're certainly not trying to spread them. But uh, And it's, I mean, sometimes it seems like it's impossible for somebody to get a handle on that because, like, for instance, the Chinese elm, which is all over New Mexico, right, they put like right. a million seeds down in your yard. So, I mean, what would your yeah. advice be to someone like in, with that situation? Well, one of, the, one of the responsibilities, I think, of every landowner is to make sure they have no invasive plants on their property. And since 83% of the whole country is privately owned and 85.6% east of the Mississippi, if we all did that, we'd be almost done in terms of getting rid of these invasive plants. Wow. I know we're never going to really get rid of them, but, but your neighbor who tolerates his Chinese elm there is, is he's supporting a tumor that is ecologically castrating the land around him. It's, it's irresponsible land ownership. So he's got to get rid of it. You've got to get rid of yours. And then that seed rain disappears. Um, that makes sense. It's, you know, yeah, it's a basic civic responsibility. I couldn't agree more. And I, I mean, it, it also, it's kind of this, you know, most people who are ecologically minded and interested in conservation are, I would say, on the far left. But I actually think that your message could be accepted by some, someone who's more libertarian because of that ownership of their property. Everybody on the planet needs a healthy environment. You can deny it, but you need it. So everybody now is an environmentalist because nobody can actually tolerate an unhealthy environment. So that makes everybody responsible for creating that healthy environment. It has nothing to do with politics. Nobody's going to lose a job over this. As a matter of fact, if everybody did it, there'd be a lot of jobs created. I would love to see a new industry that doesn't really exist now called ecological landscape. You can just hire the guy to come do it and you don't have to know anything about it, but it'll be done properly. I mean, so you've mentioned the groups that have websites and um, some local groups. Is there any really powerful network on Facebook or something like that, that is already connecting people within each county to build these communities. I know there are organizations like uh, the Wild Ones, mostly in the Midwest, but they have chapters. It's a growing organization. They've got uh, chapters, new chapters all over the place. I don't know if there's one in New Mexico. That's a uh, on the ground uh, group of people who are, who are doing this. Somebody suggested one of the chapters in my book is called Homegrown National Park, and it describes how, uh, you know, if everybody does this to your yard, we've actually made the land in between our, our parks and preserves a lot more hospitable to wildlife. And I talk about cutting the area that's in lawn in half. And if everybody did that, we'd have 20 million acres to, to work with. And 20 million acres is bigger than all the big national parks in the lower 48 added up together. That's so amazing. we'd have the largest national park. Well, the connection of all of the yards together and giving a refuge to the animals as they're passing through. That they're going to live there too. They're going to breathe there too. So we need more than just carters to, to move through. We need actual the creation of new breeding sites. The problem with parks and preserves as being the only place where we do conservation is that the populations within those parks and preserves are small because the parks and the preserves are mm -hmm. small. And that includes our largest national parks. Well, small populations are highly vulnerable to local extinction. All populations fluctuate and good times that go up and bad times that go down. But when you're a tiny population, often in your down cycle, they just, you know, they blink out of their little, little habitat. And unless they recolonize that spot, then they're permanently gone. And that's called, that's called local extinction. So the only way you avoid that is to connect 
all of these these habitats so that um, they're not isolated anymore and the populations within them are not tiny anymore. They'll still fluctuate, but they won't fluctuate to extinction because they're connected to something else. It's, it's the most powerful thing we can do to, to stop the steady drain of species that we have from our, our uh, preserves. Yeah, it makes sense. A lot of, I would say one of the themes of your book is diversification in every way, including in the small ways, like putting the smaller uh, pollinator hotels rather than the big ones, just because right, they're less right, vulnerable, yeah. more spread out. Gosh, and I guess, I mean, there, I could ask you questions all day, but um, one thing that I think was important from your book for people to think about beyond the keystone plants was what do you plant next to them and what do you plant under them and how that works with the insects. I thought that was kind of interesting. Right. We want to think about our landscapes as three-dimensional structures, not just two-dimensional. So we've got the ground layer and then we put a tree in it, but there's usually nothing in between. Um, we want to build a layered landscape. So you have the tree, then you've got maybe a shrub under that or an understory tree and, and then a ground cover. And that's critically important because, because first of all, life is three-dimensional. But when we're talking about making the caterpillars that drive these food webs, most of them, more than 90% of them, don't complete their development on the tree. They fall from the tree and they complete their development in the ground where they pupate or they spin a cocoon in leaf litter. And if we rake up all the leaf litter and, and the ground is hard, compact, and we mow it and we walk on it, then they can't do that. You know, we're putting in the right plants and the adults come in and lay eggs on those plants and the caterpillars develop and then they fall off and die. So that's, that's yet another reason we're losing insects is we don't create landscapes in which they can complete their development. So that's a, it's a, actually a, a very easy way to reduce excuse me, to reduce the area you have in lawn is by creating a, some kind of a bed or structure under each tree that, that right now may be in lawn and that reduces the area. I talk about only having lawn where you walk because it's a perfect plant to walk on without, without killing mm-hmm. it. But all the other, you know, the vast areas, and I know New Mexico is not, not really guilty of this, but boy, we sure are in the east, acres and acres of lawn. So true. <laughs> we have an area of lawn the size of New England right now. It's just a dead zone. I mean, I guess that's just going to take people getting more educated. And, you know, the whole save the bees thing is huge, but why not save the caterpillars? After your book, I, th- I think that that would be another message to spread. I don't hear people talking about caterpillars. No, but, but they talk about bird food. I mean, they go out and then they buy, they buy seed and try to feed them all winter long, but they don't realize that birds can't reproduce on seed. There's only a few that can. What, 96% of our terrestrial birds rear their young on insects. So we have to make those insects, and those are primarily caterpillars in order to have birds the next generation. It's, it's that simple. That's amazing. People have pets that they'll feed crickets to or something. So they might have a little tiny right. cage that right. has crickets being, you know, yeah. cycled or whatever. Is that possible with caterpillars without the plants? That's uh, kind of a fantasy. No, it really isn't. I mean, it's, it's much harder. The closest you can come now is, is buying mealworms. But mealworms aren't caterpillars. They're actually beetle larvae. Okay. Um, and you say, well, that's just as good. It actually is not just as good nutritionally. One of the things that all vertebrates need are carotenoids. So, you know, the chemicals we get from carrots and tomatoes. And, and it turns out they're essential for, for our uh, nutrition. We vertebrates don't make carotenoids, so we have to get them from plants. But uh, again, most of the, uh, the animals out there are not eating plants. So they eat insects, but um, caterpillars, the larvae of, of uh, uh, lepidopter of moths and butterflies are much higher in carotenoids than our beetles mm-hmm. and much higher than spiders. And earthworms have almost no carotenoids in them. So you see birds eating these things, but what they really need 
for balanced nutrition are some, some caterpillars. So putting out mealworms, um, the birds will certainly take them. It's an easy prey item, but it doesn't give them all, all that they need. And that's also a, an insect that has way more fiber than non-digestible shit. It's got a lot of exoskeleton. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I'd love to encourage everybody to get your book. It's now available everywhere. The name of the book is, is Nature's Best Hope. And of course, my message is you are nature's best hope. This level of, of earth stewardship is now responsibility of everybody. I mean, it always has been, but now we're recognizing it. And the urgency to turn around these terrible statistics we're seeing by proper landscaping. The urgency is growing every, every day. So my message is that you uh, are a, a critical component of the conservation efforts in the future. And even if you don't own land, if you live in an apartment or the middle of a city and you don't have any opportunity to do it on your own land, then volunteer in one of your parks. There are parks and preserves all over the place. All of them need uh, landscaping uh, attention and all of them need volunteers to help with that. So everybody can get, get involved. And even if, you know, even if you're, you're, even if you're old like me and you can't, can't move around, you can vote and voting for the, for the leadership that is going to support efforts like this is probably the most critical thing you can do. So vote early and often. Well, thank you very much. I really loved your book and I feel a sense of excitement about landscaping right now that I'm going to keep researching and thinking about and definitely researching my local area to understand more fully the native plants and what I could personally do. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for listening and being a part of this podcast movement. My goal is that you have been inspired to continue your learning, your hobbies and projects or businesses related to natural farming, hydro and aquaponics, bees and pollinator insects, fungi and mycology, soil and the soil food web, microbes, plants, landscaping, conservation, and however you are involved in entertaining yourself in a way that benefits the earth and our future. Follow this show at Get In My Garden on Instagram to see pictures of what we discussed here and to hear about the upcoming episodes. Also visit getinmygarden.com and make sure to sign up for the email list where we soon will include a supplemental and special content or freebies from our guests, as well as articles or other interesting things I share with my friends. Subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast wherever you listen from and leave a positive review to support the show. I'm so grateful for those of you who have shared your favorite interviews on social media and or reached out to me. Catch you next time.